Well, good morning. Good to be back with you again and a pleasure to worship with you. And I want to give a hearty amen to the fact we have so much to be thankful for, do we not? Uh, it is a special time of year. Today, I, I want you to turn with me, if you would. Go ahead and find the book of Acts. That's not too hard to locate in your Bibles. Uh, right after the four Gospels, we have the book of Acts. And I want to remind you that last week, I shared with you uh, about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, what it looks like to live the Christian life. Today, I want to talk to you about it, what it looks like to be the church, uh, to uh, collectively be the people of God. And, of course, our primary source for this information is the book of Acts. For the book of Acts is a book of history. It records an epic uh, account, the epic account of the early New Testament church. The late J.B. Phillips, in his modern English translation of the New Testament, which was first published back in the 40s and 50s, he referred to the book of Acts as the young church in action. I like that. I like that. Because in Acts, we definitely see the church of the Lord Jesus Christ on the move. We see the sweeping advance of the gospel and the birth of numerous local congregations in different towns and, and, and villages. Traditionally, the book of Acts has been known by the title, The Acts of the Apostles. If you look at the heading in your Bible, it may use that term or that phrase. But some have suggested it might best be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. For it is the Holy Spirit who is at work through the apostles and through other believers and through the early church to accomplish the purposes of God. Well, the book of Acts is a tremendous resource and it tells a great sweeping story, but we don't have time today to read all 28 chapters, okay? I won't do that. Um, but let's look at one short but profound paragraph that we find early on in the book. And that's Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Here we're going to get a very clear snapshot, I believe, of what the church is supposed to look like. Let's read that. Acts 2, verse 42 and following. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching... And the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. This is what I would refer to as a, a summary statement, this short paragraph. You see those periodically in the book of Acts. It's like 
Luke, as he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pauses after recording several events, and he just gives us a summation of where the church stands at this moment. This particular summary statement follows on the heels of the great day of Pentecost. Peter has preached the gospel. 3,000 souls were saved and added to the church that day. And these six verses right here, verses 42 through 47, give us this concise summation or, or a snapshot, if you will, of the church at this particular point in time. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in this passage is a word that, that appears early on, and it's a key word, and that is the word devoted. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves. Notice that. That is key. They, that is the members of the church in Jerusalem, devoted themselves to some things. What does that mean? They were dedicated. They were faithful. They were loyal. And this has the idea of a, of a continuous action. Um, the New American Standard says they were continually devoting themselves. The King James Version says they continued steadfastly. So it is a consistent, continual type of devotion that they exhibited. So, okay, they were devoted. What were they devoted to? Well, there were three things that are mentioned here. Uh, look, if you will, again in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers, okay? So, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread in prayer. If a church is to be authentic, if a church is to be healthy, if a church is to be vibrant, then its members have to be devoted in each of these three key areas. Now, there's another key word or significant word in this passage, and it's the word together. The word together appears a couple of times. Uh, if you look in uh, verse 44, it says, And all who believe were together and had all things in common. And down in verse 46, And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Now, the word together is a word that characterizes the church. God did not design the Christian faith to be a solo act. It has to be lived in the, con uh, the context of community. That's the way God planned it. We need each other, and we're always better together. And all throughout the New Testament, you know this, you're aware of this, but all throughout the Scriptures, we see an emphasis on one another. We're to honor one another. We're to live in harmony with one another. We're to serve one another. We're to encourage one another. We're even to correct one another. We're to pray for one another. And on and on and on the list goes. The only way we can do any of those one another's is if we're together. So the New Testament pictures this, this strong uh, togetherness, if you will. The New Testament describes the church as a body. All the, the vital parts that, that have different functions are all linked together. They're all one body together with Christ as a head. The New Testament also describes the church as a building with each stone carefully placed and fitted with care into the building. And Christ, of course, being the, the cornerstone and the very capstone of that building. So the Christian life is not one to be lived in isolation. It's not. 
As Christians, we're not to be hermits. We're not to be monks in a monastery. We're to be engaged with one another. We're to be engaged with the world. And so it's important that we live together. Back during the um, colonial times in America, actually back before uh, the American Revolution, before the Declaration of Independence, there was a war that sometimes we forget about, the French and Indian War. And back in 1770 or 1754, excuse me, uh, during the outset of that war, Benjamin Franklin published a, a drawing, kind of a, a, a cartoon almost, if you will, that said, join or, or die. And it pictured an image of, of a snake that was cut up into eight different pieces, unattached from one another. And at that time, there were eight colonies. And so Franklin argued that unless the colonies came together to face against the formidable foe of the French and their Indian allies, then they would never be able to withstand this threat. Well, that cartoon is an image. The the snake is all severed. It's all broken into different pieces. So it is with the church, my friends. Listen, alone, we're vulnerable. Separated, we more easily fall prey to the snares of Satan. But united together in Christ, we're strong. And that's the way God designed it. You may or may not know this, but every week, or most every week, I meet with a couple of different groups of our pastors across this association. We've been doing this the last two or three years And it's been such an edifying experience. We meet and do a book study together. I have a Monday night group. I have a Tuesday morning group. And often, never the twain shall be, two different groups. But I I meet with those men, and we always gather. and, And before we start, almost always I pray this. I say, Lord, as iron sharpens iron, let us sharpen one another. Because we need one another. And that's true in the church. We need one another. Togetherness is what it's all about. Now, let's back up a little bit. We said the church is composed of people who are together and who have devoted themselves to certain things. Well, let's talk a little bit further about those things to which they are devoted. First of all, remember again in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What were the the apostles' teaching? Spiritual truth, God's revealed truth, the teachings of Jesus... In other words, they were, they were teaching the Word of God. They were instructing the people in God's Word. They were proclaiming God's truth. And the church was devoted to the truth that was being taught. They were a learning church. They had a high view of Scripture. They valued God's Word. And they hungered for it. And when they received it, They grew together in their understanding of God's truth. Now, why is the Word of God so important? Well, that's kind of a silly question to say in church. But let's say it. Let's not assume anything. Why is the Word of God so central, so vital to the church, as well as to the life of an individual believer? Well, we find a very succinct answer to that scripturally in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And I'll just read that for you. For there it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 
that the man of God or the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay? So the Word of God, the Bible, the Bible that you have, is God breathed. That's what it means to be inspired. God has breathed life into this. He has inspired it. When somebody dies, we say they expired. Well, God has inspired the Word of God. It is God's Word that He spoke through the writers of old, and they penned down the Word that He led them uh, to write. And so it is the inspired Word of God. And thank God for it. And it is profitable for us. Why would it not be? Certainly God's word is going to be profitable for four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And these are all essential, as you see, so that we will all be thoroughly equipped as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, there's another way you can say that about the the word of God. In, In other words, it teaches us what is right. It teaches us what is not right. It teaches us how to get right. And it teaches us how to stay right. That's a very simple uh, explanation of what those words there mean. So the Bible is our guidebook for life. Teaches us what is right, what is not right, how to get right, how to stay right. And both as an individual believer and collectively as the body of Christ, a church needs to be devoted to the teaching of the Word of God. Now, over the course of my ministry... Um, and it is, this is not unique to me. I'm sure every pastor could attest to this, every preacher. Uh, but I have preached in a lot of churches. I've been in a lot of different places. I've been in some churches that were spiritually dead. Can I say that? Very few people were paying attention. They were not engaged in what's going on. I know you're saying, yeah, I know, you were pretty boring, weren't you? No, that's not, <laughs> hopefully that's not what it was. But, but they were just not engaged at all. I mean, they were bored, they were disinterested, they were not absorbing what was being shared. Now, by contrast, I've been in churches where the spiritual hunger is palpable. You can feel it. You can feel it. There is an eagerness to feast on God's Word. There's a hungering and and thirsting in the congregation that is quite evident. My friends, that that is God's normal, okay? In a healthy, vibrant, vital church, there has to be a high regard for the Word of God and and a deep desire for good biblical preaching and teaching, okay? So they were devoted, we see here uh, in the church in Jerusalem, they were devoted to the teaching of the Word. They also devoted themselves to the fellowship, it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. See there in verse 42. Now, it's not merely a devotion to fellowship, per se. By the way, we've watered down that word fellowship, where we think it has to do with, uh, you know, Boston cream pie and, and, uh, you know, all that cornbread and beans or whatever. We think that's what a church does with fellowship. This is not fellowship. In fact, it's not even an act of fellowship. But, but we're talking about devotion to the fellowship. The fellowship. In other words, they were devoted to the body of believers. They were devoted to the family of God. They were devoted to one another. So not only were they a learning church, they were also a caring church. You say, well, now, in what ways were they caring? 
We'll look down in verse 44 for some illustration. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. See that? They served others. They unselfishly ministered to others in Jesus' name. They were giving people, generously giving to those that were in need, sharing with them, lending them a helping hand. By the way, Christians are not to be hoarders. We're to be givers. This is, our, this is in our spiritual DNA. We are to be a blessing to others. When it's within our power to help others, it is incumbent upon us to do so. Listen, none of us can help everybody. We can't. We know that. You know, you can't help everybody in the world, but we can all help somebody. We can do that. And, and that means having a desire to help more than just your own family or your own circle of closest friends. It's got to move beyond that. Did you hear about the old guy that prayed, Oh, Lord, bless me and my wife and my son John and his wife, us four, no more. That's not the spirit of Christ, okay? So, so we've got to be willing to whomever God puts in our path, whomever God puts on our heart, we've got to love that neighbor as ourself, as Jesus commanded. Some years ago, I had the opportunity to, to do ministry in a, in a communist country, which has had an oppressive regime for decades. And um, things have always been bad there, but they're worse now. I've been there in some years, but we still stay in touch. Sandy and I still stay in touch with uh, the lady who was my translator on my trips there. And we continue to communicate. And COVID has done a number on this country. And the government uh, is not able to respond and handle it. And there's a severe food shortage in the land. And uh, this became very heavy on my heart. And so I found a way to get food shipped into this country, okay? Don't tell anybody. I found a way to do it. And, and so I was able recently to get a small shipment of food into my translator and to her family, and that encompasses about three households when you consider her sister and her husband and her mother and father, and so I was able to get some food there, but I've been in touch with her since, and, and guess what she's done? She's been taking the food we've sent, and she's been sharing it with others. And she's been sharing it with some of the brothers and sisters in her church. And that touched my heart because I said, friends, that's what church looked like. Sharing with others. Not hoarding for ourselves. We need to care. And caring and sharing is a part of being a church. What else do we see here? They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayers. The breaking of bread and prayers. Now, there's more reference in here to eating. There's more reference in this whole uh, paragraph in regard to, uh, to uh, breaking bread. But right here, it's believed that we're talking about with the breaking of bread, we're talking about the observance of the Lord's Supper. We're talking about an act of, of, of communion and worship. So, so you see, uh, the, the church, the church in Jerusalem, they got together regularly for worship. 
They, they shared communion together. They observed the Lord's Supper together. They prayed together. They praised God together. So in addition to be a learning church and a caring church, they were a worshiping church. They were a worshiping church. They had a heart for God. And a result of their heart for God and their heart for worship, the presence of God became evident in their midst. Look at verse 43. I love this. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That word awe, a sense of awe. How long has it been since you've been in the midst of God's people. You've been in a church worshiping and you have felt a sense of awe of the presence of God. We're talking here about a holy, reverential fear of God. An awareness, a heightened sensitivity to the presence of God with us. That's not something far-fetched. That's something God wants. He, want, he, he indwells the heart and life of every believer. And, and He wants us to be filled with His presence. And He wants us to experience Him together, to experience His presence together. And don't be blown away there by where it talks about signs and wonders. Anything great God does is wondrous. That's not something crazy or far out. You see, any time a soul is saved, that's a miracle of God. It's a miracle. So, so there, was, there was this sense of God in the worship. God was answering prayers. God was changing lives. God was blessing hearts. And the presence of God was evident to all. Years ago, I was involved in a revival service where several people came forward. And you could really feel the presence of God moving. And many people began confessing their sins and, and experiencing God's forgiveness. And then at the very end, in the time of open testimony, a young man said, You'd have to be a dummy not to know that the Lord's in the house tonight. I thought that was funny, but I thought it was profound. Wouldn't you like to see more gatherings where it's evident to all that the Lord is in the house. Now, part of that, that's a God thing, but part of that is dependent upon you and me. It is dependent upon our devotion to God and His church. Are we devoting ourselves to God's Word? Are we devoting ourselves to fellowship? Are we devoting ourselves to prayer and to worship? Are we seeking Him? Every church needs to be a learning church. Every church needs to be a caring church. Every church needs to be a worshiping church. That's what a New Testament church looks like. There's one more thing here, though. Like every church in Jerusalem, or like, excuse me, like, like the church in Jerusalem, every church also needs to be an evangelistic church. Verse 47 it says they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, never forget, God is the one who adds. God is the one who saves people. We don't do that, of course. But God uses us as instruments in His work. He uses us to attract others. He uses us to reach out to them with His love. You know, there's a world out there that needs us. They're looking for something real. 
You know, things got pretty crazy in 2020, and they're pretty crazy in 2021 too. I don't know what 2022 will hold. But there's a world out there where people are looking. They may not act like they're looking, but there's a deep void within them that they're wanting to fill. And they're looking for something authentic. They're looking for something meaningful. They don't need to see a caricature of Christianity. They need to see the real deal. They need to see the church in action. The church that's learning together and serving together and praying together and worshiping together. A church that loves one another, but it doesn't stop there. It is a church that loves a world that is in need. A church that loves a lost and dying world to rise up and do something about it. That's the church the world's looking for. That's the church we need to be. I went to my first church a long time ago, fresh out of seminary, 28 years old. If you want to date it, figure out my age and everything. It was 1985. Small church in Danville, Virginia. That church had been in decline for 20 years. It was not in very good shape. But God called me there, and, and I knew that he had, and, and uh, God began to, uh, to do some things while we were there. And it was a blessed and encouraging time for me. But the church had actually had no baptisms in three years, and that was a burden to me. I even challenged the church on that and said, we need to make that a matter of prayer. Goodness, we had to clean cobwebs out of the baptistry when we had our first baptism. But you know, God began to work, and it didn't happen overnight, but after some months, God began to work, people started getting saved, and church members began having a renewed concern about their neighbors. There was a man who lived a street over from the church. His name was Raymond. Raymond was in his 50s. Um, He was not a believer. Um, He didn't go to church. A couple houses down from him was one of my elderly church members. His name was James. James got a burden about Raymond, got a burden on his heart. James went down to visit Raymond, and um, I don't know if this is the best approach, but here's what he said. They had a good relationship. They were friends. But he said, Raymond, I'm concerned about you. He said, you're just too good a man to go to hell. Well... Let me say, his theology was off there a little bit because there's none righteous, no, not one, okay? But I know where he was coming from. He's saying, I I see things in you that mean a lot to me. I care about you. I want you to come to Christ. Well, we had a series of revival meetings, and Raymond came. And he was there more than once. He came on some different nights. One night in that revival meeting, The Spirit's presence was so incredibly intense. And I I look back there from the platform. I look back there and I saw Raymond on the last row. And he was in utter anguish. He had gripped the the back of the pew. And his, his knuckles were white. And he was just shaking, trying to hold on for dear life. He was under such deep conviction I extended the invitation my heart was very heavy and but Raymond resisted 
he resisted. And so when the, church, when the service came to an end and we closed the invitation, I, I did something that some people wondered, what in the world is he doing? But I said, I said, okay, I want all the men of the church right now to join me in my office back here. Well, my wife was shook up. She didn't know what in the world was happening when I did that. But I got those men back there, our deacons and other men in the church, and we all got packed into the office together, and I said, we need to pray for Raymond. He's so close. We need to pray for his soul. We need to pray for his salvation. We urgently need to do this. So we prayed that night. We prayed through the, uh, for, for quite a bit, praying around the room. The next night, Raymond came again. And the Holy Spirit's presence was so intense. And again, Raymond was resisting. And I could see how he was fighting it. God was dealing with him intensely. And, I, and I'm praying, oh God, oh God, let him, let him yield himself to you. Let him surrender himself to you. And then all of a sudden, I look, and here's Raymond. And he starts, he starts coming down the aisle from the back. He's in that back pew. And he starts coming down the center aisle. And he's, as he is making his way, he's really trudging along. He is, he is stumbling. Uh, he, he just almost can't walk. And he gets right here before he even gets to the altar. And he collapses and falls to his knees. And he's weeping. And he's crying out to God. And we gather around him. We pray for him. We pray with him. And right then and there, he repented of his sin and gave his heart and life to Jesus. And I still remember that moment to this day. That's been 36 years. You know, to this day when I think of James being burdened for his neighbor and boldly witnessing to him. By the way, a year or so later, James died and I did his funeral. So he got to do this in the last year of his life. But I think of James burdened enough for his neighbor to to witness to him. And I think of all those men who gathered in my office to pray. And they probably, most of those, gone on to be with the Lord now. And I think of Raymond falling at that altar in, in brokenness and repentance. And this summer, Raymond died. He's in his 80s. He passed away, went on to be with the Lord. But when I think of that moment in time, I think that's what the church looks like. People witnessing, people praying, people worshiping, people caring, people being saved. Let's be the church. Would you pray with me? Father God, Father God, in this moment right now, perhaps, O oh Lord, your Holy Spirit is dealing with hearts. Father, we don't know. But in a group this size, Lord, there may be someone today that's never received Christ. And they need to do so before it's eternally too late. If Raymond hadn't received Christ back in the 80s, He wouldn't be in heaven now. Father, maybe there's some here today that say, you know, I've been coming to church, I've been attending church, but I haven't been being church. God, I pray 
that you stir in every heart that your people would be, be devoted to the things that matter, devoting themselves to the teaching of the Word, devoting themselves to caring and sharing with others, devoted to the fellowship, devoted, Father, to, to ministering to others in need. Father, help us to be the people you've called us to be. Right now, Father, just may your Spirit guide each response as we come to this time of invitation. Lord, as this altar is open, I pray people would be unafraid to come to it because they're signaling that they mean business with you. So I pray that, Lord, in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together for our hymn of invitation.